בשם השם נעשה ונצליח, שיעור תורה, ברוך השם, great to be with the Miami group, in a different location in Miami, but still the same background, ברוך השם. ברוך השם, תודה. So, ברוך השם, we're here celebrating חנוכת הבית, to our amazing student, that not only has a חנוכת הבית, but also a celebration, but also ברוך השם recently finished a גיור, one of the... Three people we took to uh, New York recently to finish the conversion, Baruch Hashem. You know, it's a, such an amazing merit to be a Jew already that uh, to actually see one created in front of your eyes is mamash something extraordinary. You see how everything changes in an instant. One second, the person is not obligated to anything. He's obligated to do seven mitzvot that are relatively common sense. Don't kill anybody, don't uh, be immoral, don't curse God, don't eat animals while they're still alive. You know, simple things, common sense. Who wants to eat a living, you know, living horse? Anyone that's a normal human being is not going to eat anything alive. Even though, unfortunately, in the seafood business, people have become infatuated with things like lobsters, and uh, which are actually cooked alive. But, uh, which is a problem of its own for the Goyim. But nonetheless, anyone with common sense doesn't need much instructions from the Torah to tell them don't murder. But to see someone that decides, you know what, those seven logical mitzvot are not enough for me. Add another 606. Put me in the bracket of 613, I want to be one of the chosen. And you see people do it today, it's truly something amazing. I always have a special place in my heart for converts, aside from the fact that we went through the conversion with my wife. It's just uh, several students that uh, we've gotten, we've taken to the Bedin uh, to help them convert. Many, many students from all over the world that we help them with conversion on a, a daily basis. I think there's probably at least one new uh, convert every other day coming to me that uh, needs help with, uh, which is really much. Fulfilling the prophecy that Chazal told us about in the Gemara Masechet Avodah Zarah, page 3a and 3b, where it talks about how before the times of Mashiach, before the Mashiach actually arrives, there's going to be many, many converts. Now, in the times that this Gemara was written, nearly 2,000 years ago, this was an insane idea. Yeah, there was, well, you know, you have those few stories of a few people converting to Judaism even 2,000 years ago, even 3,000 years ago. But to say there's going to be a lot of converts, there to be something mentally wrong with you. Why would so many people want to join the nation that's being persecuted? To join the nation that half of them are... To join the people that are being persecuted by the entire world, why would anybody want to join? And to say that so many are going to do it right before the Mashiach comes... This is a hundred percent prophecy. So anyone that questions whether the Gemara is divine doesn't really. Oh Hashem, this shoe is going to be good because you know there's a lot of interruptions. Anytime Satan, Satan interrupts, you know it's going to be good shoe. So we're seeing extraordinary amount of converts coming to the world. We're seeing them be the best form of rebuke. For the rest of Am Yisrael, in the Gemara Baba Metziah, it says that the convert is like a skin disease for the rest of the nation. 
And the Mefarshim, the commentary, gives a few different Pirushim, a few different reasons of why there is skin disease. It doesn't sound exactly like a compliment. But if you look at your Tfilat Amidah that you read three times a day, you see that Hashem considers the convert higher than a natural born Jew. Higher. We pray for the convert higher than a natural born Jew. It's considered higher. Why? Because he chose the mitzvot, whereas the Jew is obligated regardless. Now, so when the Gemara says the convert is like a skin disease, it's okay. What are you saying? You're saying that the very same people that Hashem mentioned 36 times in the Torah as being special, as being the ones that He's both their father and their mother, as being the ones that have a special deal with Hashem, beyond, above and beyond the natural born Jew, where you're not even allowed to pressure a convert. Forget about not being nice to him. You're not even allowed to pressure him. You have to love him more than a natural born Jew. How can you say at the same time that he's a skin disease? So one of the most acceptable commentaries explains that when a convert is a real convert, he's 100% zealous. He's like Pinchas. He's willing to mamash give his life for Hashem. Nothing else in the world matters to him. Nothing else in the world matters to her. They're willing to amash put their life on the line for the smallest mitzvah. Once they've discovered that Hashem is real, nothing else matters. Sometimes us natural born Jews take Hashem and the relationship we have with Hashem for granted. They think, oh, he's Abba, you know, I'll get them when I get a chance. So the convert that's zealous for the mitzvot that on day one puts kisui roshan, that on day one is eating everything kosher to the highest level, inside the house and outside the house. Because Hashem is inside the house and outside the house. <laughs> Hashem is not only inside the house. It's very easy to be religious inside the house. Like a lot of people say, no, no, I keep kosher in the house. What about outside the house? No, you know, chicken, salads. Why, Hashem is not, doesn't, doesn't care about the salads at the... Outside the house? Doesn't care about the chicken outside the house? No, but hold on, I don't eat uh, pig. Okay, but when you eat the salad at Subway, every time you eat a bug, inside the salad, because the going don't wash the salad the same way the Jews do, it's worse than eating pig. So Hashem doesn't care about that salad. So it's inside the house and outside the house, on day one. Inside the house and outside the house, they're zealous for Hashem. They learn to on a daily basis. They're excited about it. And every time they see a natural born Jew mistreating the Torah, mistreating Hashem, mistreating the relationship that they have with Hashem Barach, it bothers them. And many times they say something. So the Barach says, this reminder is very annoying. It's very annoying to the natural born Jews. I say, okay, okay, fine, you picked your mitzvot, go pick your mitzvot somewhere else. You don't have to remind me, I... I have a special deal with Hashem. Everybody thinks they have a special deal with Hashem. They don't have a special deal with the IRS, but they think they have a special deal with Hashem. So the convert is reminding us constantly, my friend, time to wake up. Abba is calling. Abba is calling. Now one of the negative things about this pirush is that if a convert is not zealous 
if a convert is not just zealous, but not zealous in the right way. Because to convert in general, you have to be zealous to some extent. Unless you're a fake convert completely, you, you know, converted for, religion, for, for marriage, for money, you know, which, which is not a real convert anyway. But the point is, is that when a convert is misdirected, where they don't have a rav, that they hold by, they're not a part of a community. They're not putting themselves in a situation where they're going to have an authority figure that has experience, that has knowledge, that has Yirat Shammai, most importantly, direct them. Unfortunately, the Gemara says that convert is very dangerous. That's what happened with the Erev Rav. That's what happened with the Erev Rav. When we went to Mount Sinai, we just heard God's voice. We saw miracles every second. Moshe Rabbeinu goes up to Mount Sinai for 40 days. And when he comes down, we have an idol. Something wrong with you? What happened? Maraz says, that's the Erevav. The Erevav, the fake converts, they're the ones that put the idol. <coughs> so when you have a convert that's misdirected, it's very, very dangerous. And that's why in the world today, you see that a lot of problems in the conversion world. Unfortunately, those Erevrav, those bad converts that converted for the wrong reason, or that started going off the derech, or started going off in their own different way, have made it bad for everyone. One example is what happened in the state of Israel in 1971-72, where they had a uh, woman that uh, came to Israel, a non-Jew, and uh, she found an Israeli, she wanted to marry him. And uh, in Israel, in those, time, in those times, they didn't allow a Jew and a non-Jew to get married. At least back then, they had some type of rule. So, uh, they said, okay, let's go outside of the country and get married. They went, they got married. And uh, they also uh, did a uh, reform conversion. Disgrace. So they did a reform conversion, came back to Israel, and now they had kids, and she wanted the kids to be declared Jewish. You know, in those days they had Tudat Ziyut, and it said your religion on Tudat Ziyut, on your identification. So she wanted the kids to be recognized as Jewish. The Rabbanut says they're not Jewish. You're not Jewish, and they're not Jewish. But no, but I did a reform conversion. Like, yeah, reform conversion is worth absolutely zero. It's not worth anything. So, they started fighting it, they brought it to the court, they brought it to the media. It became a very, very big problem. A very big problem for the Rabbanut. Eventually, unfortunately, the uh, rabbi of the uh, IDF was bought off. He was an Orthodox rabbi. He was bought off and he ended up converting the, her in a matter of a couple of days, without her knowing anything, without her accepting any mitzvot, as an Orthodox uh, woman. And what ended up happening is that you had problems from that day forward on in the world of conversions. <laughs> so this is just one small example of uh, problems with conversions. In today's world, I see a lot of uh, converts that, uh, Baruch Hashem, are amazing. But once in a while you see 
Ones that are like off. They're very angry. Very angry people. They're upset that Am Yisrael is not all Moshe Rabbeinu. They're upset that everyone is not excited and celebrating the coming of the Mashiach any day. They're, they're upset that everyone is not as zealous as them, but they get to a point where they start hating Am Yisrael. They start becoming self-hating people. And this is very dangerous. So, one of the most important things that we're reminded by Rosh Chodesh is that Hashem has His own timing. And His timing is not always the same thing as our timing. If you look in the book of Exodus, Parashat Bo, Parashat Bo, chapter 12, we see that Hashem Barach gives us the mitzvah of Rosh Chodesh well before we get the Ten Commandments, before we get Shabbat, before we get all 613 mitzvot, we get Rosh Chodesh. What's the big deal? What's the rush? What's such a big deal about this Rosh Chodesh? Beginning of a month. Wow. That's the mitzvah. That's the first mitzvah you want to give us. Maybe you want to give us Shabbat. Shabbat's the foundation of the Torah. Chazal says a Jew that doesn't keep Shabbat is considered 100% an idol worshiper. That's a big mitzvah. Give that number one. Why don't you give Brit Milah? Brit Milah, that's one of the covenants. Give Tfilin, give Kosher, give Tarat Mishpacha. If a woman is not willing to keep, keep Tarat Mishpacha, she doesn't, she, the husband is not only allowed to divorce her instantly, but she doesn't get to get the, uh, the uh, Ketubah. Tarat Mishpacha, without Tarat Mishpacha, there's no marriage. Why don't you make that the first mitzvah? No, no, no. He says here, Rosh Chodesh. Why Rosh Chodesh? So Chazal explains to us that in the times of the Greek persecution that we had in Machshimam Vezichram, they, unlike the Romans that were trying to destroy us as people, the Greeks were trying to purely just destroy the religion. They even told us, listen, We'll pay you money to leave Judaism. We'll make you governors. We'll make you politicians. We'll make you whatever you want. Just stop being Jewish. We didn't listen, so they started forcing us to do it. And by forcing us, they made us stop keeping certain mitzvot. They outlawed a certain, a few mitzvot. One of the three mitzvot that they decided to outlaw, celebration of Rosh Chodesh. The Greeks knew some Torah here. They weren't just ignorant people. They decided to outlaw Rosh Chodesh. Why outlaw Rosh Chodesh? Because Rosh Chodesh is a reminder that everything has its time. Even though Hashem told us to celebrate Pesach, He didn't say just celebrate Pesach whenever you feel like it. He said it's Chag Aviv. It has to be in the spring. So you can't just decide to celebrate Pesach in December. He said Shavuot has to come 49, weeks plus one day after Pesach. You can't just decide to celebrate Shavuot on the third day of Pesach because you're so excited and zealous. Or celebrate uh, uh, Shavuot six months after Pesach. You can't just do Hanukkah in uh, the middle of the year, just because you feel like it. 
Everything has its time. Why does everything have its time? Shem says, you need to connect to me the way that I know is the best way to connect. There are certain times of the year that require a specific type of connection. There's a daily connection that you do with going to pray every day. You have shachrit, you have mincha, you have arvit, you have maybe perhaps your own personal prayer that you do if you do it, but they do it, or any personal prayer. But that's your daily. On top of it, you have your limut Torah, anytime you learn, you connect to Hashem. You have your daily day stuff. According to the Ben Yishchai, if you study Torah on Shabbat, it's worth 1,000 times more than the Torah you study on a weekday. Ben Yishchai, Shana Shniya. This is a very special day. He says, even then, it's not Pesach. It's not Yom Kippur. It's not Rosh Hashanah. That has a different time. That has a different time. And you have to know that that time, Hashem put it there for some reason. So when the Goyim, the Greeks, decided to remove Rosh Chodesh, what were they really trying to do? They tried to remove the Hebrew calendar, the biblical calendar, because they knew that without us celebrating the holidays at a specified time, we can't celebrate them. Which means that we can't have this connection with Hashem Barach. We missed the whole connection. Judaism, Hashem Yerachem, is gone. And this is the reason why Hashem decided, He said, before I give you the details of everything that you need to do, all the mitzvot, all the halachot, all the wonderful holidays, all of the, everything and anything, you have to know rule number one. Kol davar beito. Everything has a specific time. Now why is this so important to us, even, even on a day-to-day basis? We're not celebrating Rosh Chodesh every day. Because you see, many times people get very, very, Upset when Hashem doesn't dance to their tune. They did Shuvah six months ago, they already think they should become Bill Gates, Warren Buffett, and Eddie Lampert all in the same bank account. On top of that, the many Moshe Rabenu and married to the greatest human being that ever lived after them. Why? Because they see keeping Shabbat six months. And if everything doesn't work out that way, like, ah, I don't know if this religion thing is working for me. First and foremost, you have to understand, Hashem doesn't work for you. It's a very, very important rule to know. He does not work for you. He's not here to serve you. It's the opposite. You're here to serve Him. Second of all, just like He had patience for you for 30, 40, 50, 60 years until you finally did Shuvah and finally started keeping one real mitzvah, and he didn't kill you like he was supposed to, according to his Torah. He said, yes, and someone's Bechal Shabbat, Mot Yumat. Could have killed us a long time ago when we did the first Chilul Shabbat. But he gave you more times and more time and more time and more time because he knew that at 36 years old, you're finally going to do Tshuva. At 56 years old, you're finally going to do Tshuva. So he gave you time. Now you're complaining about him after you only giving him six months. So we have to adjust our clocks a little bit. The second and even more important thing is to understand that Hashem has a different clock than we do. Meaning that He's only going to give us what 
we need when we need it and not necessarily what we want when we want it. And there's a very big difference between the two. You take a little kid, you take one of the kids to the store and they want the candy. Sadima, I need it, I need it. No, 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 you don't need it. You want the candy. You're going to survive even without the candy. The guy goes to a Passes by a car lot. Oh, I need, I need the Ferrari. No, you don't need the Ferrari. The little Tustus is also going to get you to work. The little Hyundai is also going to get you to work. You don't need the Ferrari. You don't need the Range Rover. You don't need to spend $150,000 on a car. Oh, this guy, uh, one of my students yesterday, God bless him. He loves money so much. It's make, makes my heart break that he has this disease of loving money so much. But there's other shit. Hopefully, I'll get over it. But he tells me, watch, watch. I'm going to have a $10 million house. I said, what do you need a $10 million house for? Nice little house for a couple hundred thousand dollars. I don't know, wherever you live in the world. Fit your family fine. What do you need a $10 million house for? No, you know, I need to have this. Nonsense, show off. I need, I need. It's not what you need. You need a roof over your head. You need food. You need to breathe, clean air. Very limited needs. So Hashem gives you what you need when you need it. Once in a while, I'll give you what you want too. But sometimes, what you want is bad for you. So Hashem is not going to give it to you. But as Rabbi Akiva said in Gemara Masechet Brachot, everything that the merciful one does, he does for the best. Meaning, that even though Hashem can take you from point A to point B, in an infinite amount of ways. He could take you by a plane, he could take you with a car, he could take you with a uh, rocket, he could take you just flying, he could take you on the wings of some really big eagle, he could take you in a car, he could take you on a motorcycle, he could take you from point A to point B, infinite amount of ways. He doesn't need my ideas to help him. But he's going to take you in the best possible way. Meaning that anything and everything that ever happens in your life only happened because Hashem signed off on it. It's not that He necessarily wants it to happen, but He willed it to happen. And there's a very big difference between the two. People think, wait, if Hashem <coughs> makes everything happen, then, and He says at the same time that He's merciful, why did He let the Holocaust happen? What, Hashem wanted the Holocaust to happen? No, he didn't desire for the Holocaust to happen. He didn't desire for Choban Bet HaMikdash or Rishon or Asheni to happen or the pogroms or the inquisitions or anything else that we had. He didn't desire, he didn't want it to happen, but it needed to happen and therefore he willed it to happen. Meaning, he allowed it to happen. It cannot happen without Hashem allowing it to happen. Nothing in the world can happen without Hashem allowing it to happen. Hashem has to sign off on every single breath that comes in and out of your lungs. Every leaf has to ask permission from Hashem before it falls off the tree. Can I fall now? No, not yet. Can I fall now? No, not yet. How many leaves does a tree have? Thousands and thousands. And every one of them has to ask Hashem, can I fall now? No. Now? No. Now? No. He won't fall until Hashem says, okay, now. Now you can fall. So if Hashem worries about every hair on your head and every leaf in a tree and every little breath that you take, what do you think? He missed out on the Holocaust? He missed out on some Inquisition? He missed out on some election? What? He didn't know? Somebody beat him to it? No. Hashem signed off on it. And there's reasons for why he did it. And Rabbi Akiva says, the reason must be good. 
ultimately, even though it looks like an error, even though it looks like a disaster, even if it's painful to see death, to see trauma, to see all types of horrible things in life, it's difficult to have one student in India, her daughter died not too long ago. Every day, every day the woman doesn't stop crying and I cry with her whenever I can. Whenever I hear it, I cry with her. It's, it's heartbreaking. Girl is seven years old. What are you going to do? What are you going to tell her? It's going to be okay? What's going to be okay? The kid died. What are you going to tell her? It's, a, uh, it's going to go away? No, it's not going to go away. The only explanation that's soothing is there must be something good from this. How? I don't know. I'm not God. I'm not God. But Hashem signed off on it. And eventually you're going to see the benefit out of it. Maybe not this year. Maybe not next year. Maybe not even in this lifetime. But eventually you're going to see everything is for the good. You see that your daughter finished her tikkun. She's in Gan Eden right now. You're suffering because you're missing out on her. You're missing out on seeing her grow up, play with your other kids, hang out, grow up, get married, have kids. You're missing out on that adventure. But if you really knew, for sure, you saw like a little... Visual. Shem gave you what according to visual. My daughter is playing in heaven with Rabbi Akiva. And all the Chachamim, and all the Tzadikim, and all the Tzadikot. She's hanging out. She's having fun. She's enjoying eternity. You're going to be still be upset? If you love her, you're not going to be upset because you know she's in Ganeden. What do you want for her? You want good for her. She has good. She's better than you. You're in a Tzara. You're in a problem, not her. She's in Gan Eden. So Abi Akiva tells us one of the secrets. Everything must be good, even if you don't understand it. Now, amazing story I heard actually uh, today or yesterday from Rav Fein about Rav Levi Gloiberman, who is also called Ayanuka. He was a big Talmud Chacham of Rabbi Israel Mistalim. And one day, he had some pain in his leg, and they uh, decided to take him to uh, the hospital. Moments later, they said, listen, you have a serious problem, you got to cut off your leg. This is a few hundred years ago, this is not a... Uh... I'm sorry, less. less, less. It's previous generation. Different story. They went to him and they said, We have to amputate your leg. It's a big deal. They go, surgery, they cut off the leg, and the family's waiting for him to recover. And they overhear the doctors, and the main doctor comes in, and he looks at the phone. What is this? No! Wrong guy! You're not supposed to cut off his leg. You're supposed to cut off the other guy's leg. The family heard this. They said, do we tell him? Do we not tell him? They already cut it off. What are you going to do about it? So they all came in, not knowing what to do, but one of the young ones, that doesn't have the greatest midot in the world, decides to tell the rabbi, rabbi, you know... You know, the doctor made a mistake. He wasn't supposed to cut off your leg. And 
then a whole family starts riling up. No, he did it. We're going to sue. We're going to do this. I can't believe it. What's going to happen? And Abi Levy, Lloyd puts his fingers like you're supposed to. The reason why Hashem designed your fingers exactly to fit your ears. So you don't listen to Lashon Hara or Kfira. If you notice, your fingers fit your ears exactly. They don't fit my ears or his ears or somebody else's ears. They fit your ears exactly perfect so you can block your hearing. Why? So you don't listen to any kfira, to any heresy, to any idol worship, to any Lashon Hara. So that's what he did. He put his hands, he shut his ears. He said, Rabbi, what are you doing? He said, my Rabbi told me that the words that you're saying are the words of kfira, the words of heresy, the words against God. If you're saying that the doctor made a mistake, you are a kufil. I keep Shabbat, I keep kosher, in the house, in the house, in the house. Mm-hmm. Kofet? Was your kofet? Why am I kofet? There's no mistakes happen in the world. No mistakes happen in the world. If Hashem allowed someone to cut my leg, that means it was supposed to happen. Why? I don't know. But it was supposed to happen. There's no mistakes. Everything and anything in the world that happens must be signed off by Hashem Barach. It doesn't happen without it. It cannot happen without it. And he says, anyone that says otherwise, it's a kufir. And you have a serious problem because anyone that's a kufir, according to the Rambam, they have no share of the world to come. It's a very big problem. So for any of those people that are having a hard time understanding Hashem's timing, it's time we start realizing that it's not necessarily about understanding Hashem's timing. It's more about understanding our own limitation to understand Hashem's reasoning. Now Rabbi Hanina ben Tardion was one of the greatest sages that ever lived but at the same time was one of the Asara Hugei Malchut, one of the ten, ten mortars that the evil Romans killed in public in a horrific, horrific way, each one worse than the other. This is one of the things we mourn during Tisha B'Av. We talk about how they killed each and every one of them and get depressed all over again each time. Not because they killed them, because they're in a better world like we talked about a few minutes ago but because we don't have their Torah anymore. We don't have their knowledge anymore. We have only a limited amount of what they actually had. Rabbi Hanina ben Tardion was one of those tzaddikim that understood Hashem's reasoning is beyond him. Even with all of his intellect, even though he was able to revive the dead, even though his daughter was married to Rabbi Balanes, her name was Buya, her herself was one, considered one of the sages. When the Romans tied him up to his Sefer Torah and started to burn him, he didn't ask, oh, where is Hashem? He didn't say, oh, well, Hashem forgot me. Hashem didn't think about me. 
The only thing he was concerned about was telling his students, my students, that Sefer Torah is being burnt. But I see the letters coming out and going into the heavens, which is a reminder for us that they could hurt our body, but our neshama is eternal. David HaMelech didn't ask Hashem why his timing is his timing. The way David HaMelech started his day, ended his day, started his life, ended his life was with Hashem in mind. There was nothing, no step in David HaMelech's life where Hashem wasn't in mind, including his own Hanukkah Abayit. We have Hanukkah to buy today. Baruch Hashem. And we have a Mizmo, we have a Tehilim that David HaMelech sings to Hashem and he reminds us of this very same principle. In Tehilim 30 it says, Mizmo, Shir Hanukkah to buy it le David. It says a song, a song for the inauguration of the temple by David. Hanukkah to buy it. What buy it? The buy it of Hashem. Even though David HaMelech was not around when they actually built the entire Bet HaMikdash, he saw it being built in prophecy. So he saw the Bet HaMikdash that his son, Shlomo HaMelech, was going to build. And he says here, we have a Hanukkah bite. Everyone wants a bite. People want a house. If they have one house, they want a bigger house. If they have a big house already, they want a second house. They want a vacation house. Everyone wants a house. You tell somebody, listen, I'm renting. Oh, why are you wasting money on renting? Why don't you buy? Have your own house. Yeah, but then instead of paying the rent, I pay the mortgage for 500 years. Yeah, but at least it's yours. No, it's not. If you stop paying the mortgage, you take it back. It's not yours. It's the bank's. So you're renting it just from the bank instead of some guy. People are infatuated with this purchasing of a house. You tell somebody I'm renting, like they're all oh, be skin. Like it's some type of like, you know, physical flaw of some kind. Some big rabbis rented their houses their whole life. It's not exactly a uh, uh, one of the 613 mitzvot to own a house. But the point being here is when you ask Hashem in your prayers and the many, many prayers, you cry to Hashem, I want a house, I want a house, I want a house, I want a house. Did you ever ask yourself, why would Hashem give you a house? What are you going to do with it? What are you going to do with this house? Are you going to have a house? Are you going to have big parties and a bunch of chilul Hashem? Are you going to have a house so it's full of things that are against Hashem? Are you going to have a house you're going to show off and be arrogant? What are you going to have a house for? Oh, you're going to have Sifre Kodesh? Okay. you have Shur Torah? Okay. You're going to help people? You're going to fulfill mitzvot? Fine. That's a reason. And David HaMelech is saying, Mizmor shir Hanukkah Abayit leDavid Aromimecha Adonai ki dilitani velo simachta oivayli. A psalm, a song for the inauguration of the temple by David. I will exalt you, Hashem, for you have drawn me up and not let my fo- my foes rejoice over. He says, Hashem, I know you have your own timing. I know I'm not going to be around 
to see the Bit HaMikdash. But I just want to let you know that every day of my life, I've always did everything I possibly can to do Kiddush Hashem, to exalt your name. And thank you for giving me that opportunity. Because if you would give me the opportunity to live in the times of the Bet HaMikdash, I would still do the same. Your timing may not be something that I desire. I want to be alive for the Bet HaMikdash. But you're the one that runs the show. Rabbi Hanina ben Tardion in Mishnah Gimel Gimel Chapter 3-3 Continue on Musar series Rabbi Hanina ben Tardion Omer Shnayin sheyoshbim ve'en b'neim divrei Torah Arei zeh moshav letzim Shneemar Umoshav letzim lo yashav Aval shnayin sheyoshbim ve'esh b'neim divrei Torah Shekhinah shruya b'neim Shneemar Az nidberu yere Adonai Ish el re'eu Ve'yakshev Adonai ve'ishma Ve'yikatev sefer zikaron lefanav Ve'yere Adonai lechoshbe shemo אין לי אלא שניים מנין שאפילו אחד שיושב ועוסק בתורה שהקדוש ברוך הוא קובע לו שכר שנאמר יושב בדד וידום כי נטל עליו. Translation, רבי חנינה בן תרדיון gives us one of the most important principles of our day to day life. He says the following, if two sit together and there are no words of Torah between them, it is a session of scorners. Two people sitting, having lunch. They're just sitting down. They're walking. They don't talk to Allah. It says they're both considered scorners. We'll explain why. In Psalm 1.1, David HaMelech says the following. He says, it is a session of scorners. He does not sit. Anywhere where there's people that are scorners, meaning people that are disrespecting and undervaluing Hashem or His Torah, Consider them scorners, you're not going to find him there. He's not going to give them any blessing. Nothing is good is going to come out of it. But if two sit together, and words of Torah are between them, the Divine Presence rests between them, as it is said in Malachi the Prophet, chapter 3, verse 16, Then those who fear Hashem spoke to one another, and Hashem listened and heard. And a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear Hashem and give thought to his name. From this verse, we would know this only about two people. But how do we know that if even only one person sits and occupies himself with Torah, that the Holy One, blessed is he, determines reward for him? As it says in Lamentations 3.28, let one sit in solitude and be still, for he will receive a reward for it. Okay, very, very long Mishnah, but very simple explanation. Rabbi Hanina ben Tardion is telling us here, you come to this world to fulfill Hashem's will, not to make money, not to fulfill all your physical desires, not to be famous, not to do anything other than to fulfill the will of Hashem for your own best interest. Hashem will be perfect with or without you. But for your own best interest, you have to fulfill the will of Hashem. Anytime you do something that's against Hashem, 
It's like something, it's like somebody drinking poison and expecting somebody else to die. Anytime you do something that's against Hashem, you are feeding your neshama poison. Now you might not see the effect of the poison today. Just like smokers don't see the effect of the cigarette on their lungs today. Or people that take drugs, the first time they smoke pot, they don't think it's a big deal. When do they realize it's a big deal? Five, six, seven years into it, when it's no longer just pot. Pot is just a recreational drug they do in between the cocaine and heroin. Or the pills and everything else they're addicted to. But it started as pot, innocent pot they call it. Nonsense. The point being here is Rabbi Hanina ben Tardion is telling you you didn't come for that. You came here to fulfill the will of Hashem. Now, if you actually understood what Torah is and how good it is for you, that it's the medicine, it's the cure, it's everything and anything that's any good in the world must have a source in a Torah. If you realize what it is and you spend any time that you had free doing anything other than Torah, in Shemaim it's considered as if you are mocking it. Meaning, if obviously you're making a living, you're driving your cab, you're selling your stocks, you're selling your insurance, you're building your building, you're making your living, fine. Do what you gotta do. You're spending time with your family to have Shlom fine. There's a certain amount of time you have to spend with your family also. Raise your kids, be with your wife, be with your husband, and so on. But everyone has 24 hours. No one has more, no one has less. Everyone has 24 hours. There's no way that you can say that he can study 12 hours a day, also has a job, but he can study 12 hours a day, 8 hours a day, but you can't find one hour. It's impossible. It's impossible that my student in Bulgaria, that's a shepherd, the process of conversion has the ability to study a few hours of Torah every single day. Well, with the sheep, without the sheep. With work, without work. With money, without money. Cold, hot, irrelevant. He can find a few hours every single day to study Torah and do Kiruv. Another student in India not only studies Torah probably more than anybody, he does more Kiruv than anybody else. Vimesh the Tzaddik, the person, I don't know, honest, honestly, I think he's like a mini Eliyahu Navi or something. The guy doesn't sleep ever, he studies non-stop, he learns Torah non-stop, and does Kiruv at the same time. Other students that I have all over the place, some are studying an hour a day, some 15 minutes a day, some few hours, 10 hours a day, I have one guy went from being a murderer to being an Avrech and a Kolo. Studies, eight, ten hours a day. All these people are studying Torah. You don't have one hour? You don't have a half hour? Nothing? You have no time for God? So Rabbi Hanan ben Tardion says, you my friend are a scorner. Why? Because really deep down inside, you're not one of these ignorant people who doesn't know what Torah is. If you're one of those people who doesn't know what Torah is, it's different. We're still, we are still trying to get you out of the zoo. Because you still think that you and a gorilla are the same. Because you don't know that we're here and we're different than the gorillas. You don't know that Darwin was just a theory. It's not fact. You don't know what Torah is yet. Fine. You're different. You're in a different class. But if you already know what Torah is, you go to Ben Knesset, you go to, you keep a few mitzvot, you're like one of those robots that keep Shabbat. 
and you still don't study Torah, you study, you're doing Hashem a favor by studying a few Mishnayot once a week, you, my friend, are considered a scorner. Every time you sit with one of your friends, and neither one of you has a Dvar Torah, and the only Dvar Torah you have is how LeBron James went to Rabbi Pinto for a bracha. Before you signed a contract with the Cleveland or with somebody a few years ago. That's your Dvar Torah. You, my friend, have a serious problem. Rabbi Hanan Ben is telling you, you're missing the point. Because if you actually knew what Torah is, you wouldn't waste a minute not learning it. What is it like, Chazal says? Chazal says it's like somebody that gets a job to count money. Press this button, you print paper. Press this button, you print money. So the right button prints $100 bills. Left button prints paper for you to print your kids' drawing on them. What's the payment for, for, for pressing the button? You keep whatever you print. And this idiot keeps printing the paper. He's printing the paper. No, no, my kid needs to draw. My kid needs to draw. An hour, two hours, three hours, four hours, he's printing paper. Now one time he's printing a hundred dollar bill. That's what Chazal is saying over here. You're printing the paper, you fool. Print one hundred dollar bill. Print two hundred dollar bills. Print a thousand hundred dollar bills. A hundred dollar bill, it's, it's, it's an eternity. No. He wants to talk about LeBron James. He wants to talk about baseball, basketball, football, I don't know, whatever else people talk about these days. All bunch of waste of time conversations. And as it says in Shira Shirim, Song of Songs by the wisest man that ever lived. Nafshiyat's Abedvaro. Nafshiyat's Abedvaro means that the nefesh, the neshama of the person, came out of him when? Through his words. Chazal explains to us here from this Song of Songs verse. <coughs> From here we learn from Shlomo Amelech, the wisest man that ever lived, that every single person comes to the world with a limited amount of words in a bank that they can use. Once they used up all these words, time's up. They go to Shemaim. Now if these words are divrei Torah, they have an unlimited bank account. You could say Divrei Torah as much as you want. But if it's Shtiyot, it's everything else. It's like, oh, what did you do this weekend? What did you buy? Who's running for president? Who is president? Who's secretary of state? Who made a lot of money? Who lost a lot of money? Who is this one? Who that one? All the Shtiyot that people waste their life doing, talking about. He says, you are wasting your life with your words, my friend. Every time a word comes out of your mouth, you're killing yourself, actually. Your neshama comes out just a little bit more. Oh, let me tell you what I heard in the stock market today. Okay, your neshama just came out a little bit more. Oh, let me tell you about this uh, contract that this baseball player signed. You kept yourself a little bit more. A little bit more closer to death. A little bit more closer to death. Every time more shkiot come out. And sometimes you see people, Shem they're in the Bet Knesset. Inside the Bet Knesset. Not outside, like at least you have some respect for Torah. No, inside the Bet Knesset, what do they do? They sit there, 
Metpatim, Stam, they talk nonsense. What do they talk about? Oh, you know, if I was the president, I would go and I would attack that one. I would raise this one. I would increase inflation. I would lower inflation. I would change the rate. I would fire this guy. I would fire that guy. Not only are they killing themselves, but they're wasting their life, even if they're not religious at all, by talking about things that are not even actual. You're talking about what would you do if you were president? You don't even know the president to be the president. You don't even have his phone number. You can't even text him. You can't even tweet him. He doesn't know you exist. Your ideas are meaningless to him. Why do you think your ideas are so important that if you were president, who cares if you were president? You're not the president. Or like people talk about, no, if I won the lotto, this is what I would do. But you didn't win the lotto. What I, why are you wasting your time about talking about things that didn't happen? And are not going to happen most likely. I have this one student, God bless him, he tells me, listen, once I have all this uh, money in a few months, I'm going to buy a $10 million house. I'm going to have my family come over and my parents are going to live with me. And he has this whole plan. He talks to me. And you know, I try to give people, I don't know, some time sometimes. I don't know, maybe I have a tikkun in this world that I have to listen sometimes more than I want to. But I let him talk. I let him talk. God bless him. He's a cute kid. And he's like, hey, he's going to have this money. He's going to have this. He's going to have it. He has this whole plan. So I don't know, a minute, two minutes into it, I ask him, wait, do you even have a job? He goes, no, no, not yet. <laughs> so how are you going to get all this money? You don't even have a job yet. Is people like to talk about your things that could, you know, that going to happen. Is the, they want to live an illusion. So now, not only do we realize that we're wasting our life by just living in some illusion, but on top of it, we're killing ourselves, according to Shlomo Melech. Mama is killing ourselves. We're wasting our life with every single word that's not Torah. The Chazonish makes a very strong statement in the collected letters that they have of him, 392. And he says, some people neglect to bring their daily activities under the umbrella of Torah jurisdiction. Meaning, that they separate their Torah life with the rest of their life. Say, so when I'm in a Beknesset, I'm going to speak to my Torah. I'm going to listen to the rabbi's speech. I'm going to pray. I'm going to do whatever I'm going to do. When I'm outside, I'm free. I'm going to talk about baseball, football, basketball, business nonstop. I'm outside. I'm not talking about when you have to do it for the purpose of work. Obviously, you have to do it for the purpose of work. I'm talking about any time you have extra, any time that's beyond work. You don't work all the time. Most people believe that they work a lot more than they really do. In reality, you work probably 10 to 15% from what you actually think you work. People that work in an office, they go, oh, no, no, I work from 9 to 5, I work really, really hard. But in reality, if you actually evaluate the actual work that that employee did from 9 to 5, it's maybe an hour and a half. Maybe an hour and a half. Most of the time, you went to the water, you went to the bathroom. 
nonsense between employees, playing with the papers, looking on the internet, checking his text message, you know, going about them again, smoking a cigarette, wasting time. Or no, there's no work to do, or he doesn't know, or he's just wasting time, or he's looking at the air, or he's daydreaming. He's not actually working. This is a fact of life. I didn't make this up. This is a real. This is a reality. Nine to five, you didn't work for eight hours. Sorry to tell you. If you actually think you work eight hours a day, you're sadly mistaken. Even if you be, oh no, no, I drive a cab. I work nonstop. Listen, you're pressing a gas, gas pedal. You go from place to place. Yes, over an extended period of time, it's very, very difficult. It's hard on the body. But in reality, you're also enjoying yourself at the same time. You look at some food, you listen to the radio, you listen to the music. You don't really feel like you're building a building exactly. The point is that we don't work anywhere near as hard as we think we do. But the guy says, listen, even if you calculate all eight hours as work, all eight hours of work, you have a couple hours you have to bake nasty during the day. You have a few hours you have to sleep. You still have a basket of hours left to do something with. You could learn Torah, you could play basketball. You could learn Torah, you could go to the club. It's a basket of hours you have every single day. What are you doing with that time? The guy says, says, if that guy says that during that time, since I'm not in the Knesset, I don't need to be worried about religion. Because you have a problem. In fact, the Chazoni says, even during the eight hours of work that you have, if you think that you shouldn't be thinking about Torah the whole time, you have a serious problem. Why do you have a problem? He says, the practice of dividing the Torah into two separate domains, where on one end you're listening to the scholars of the generation on one part of your life, while the other end is seeking to retain freedom of choice, you know, do what you want. Because this is exactly what the disbelievers of German Jewry did. All the German Jews, it's exactly what they did. They followed the advice of the Machshimov the Mendelssohn, where he said, be a Jew at home, and a person, a human being outside. Be religious, pray at home, learn whatever you want to learn at home, but outside be like everybody else. Since this is what happened in German Jewry. And the Germans ended up having such assimilation before World War II that it was over 80% assimilation inside Germany before World War II. Meaning 8 out of 10 couples were intermarried. But not just intermarriage like you have, for example, the horrible situation we have in America. Where you have intermarriage, but people, you know, she's Christian, he's a Jew, but neither one of them are really religious. Or sometimes he still goes to synagogue a couple times a year, and she goes to church a couple times a year, and they think it's okay. No, no, no. In the times of World War II, it got to such an extent that the Jews said, no, no, no. This Judaism is not for me, I'm going to become a Catholic, I'm going to become a Christian. They converted outside of Judaism. Why? Because they thought that it's a free-for-all. It's a free-for-all. Chazoni says, such practice of compartmentalization 
is counted among those who have no share in Olam and cannot even be used as valid witnesses. Someone that compartmentalizes Judaism, where he says, listen, Bet Knesset, I'll be Jew. Outside of Bet Knesset, I have my own life. I gotta run my business the way I gotta run my business. I gotta run my family the way I wanna run my family. I gotta run my friends the way I wanna run my friends. He says, if you compartmentalize Judaism, you can actually lose your Allah because of that, Chazunishas. Why? Because Torah has to be on your mind at all times. Why? When you're in business, you have to say, wait a minute, is my business kosher? To start off the business, before we think about the laws of business, before we think about the details of my business, is my business kosher, Bechlal? If you're running a Ponzi scheme, obviously not kosher. If you're cheating people, it's not kosher. If you are dishonest, it's not kosher. You have to change a job. Yeah, but it's going to take me a while. I'm going to make less money. Who cares? There's, there's no exceptions. If your business is not kosher, it's not kosher. So now going into the details of the business, how you treat your customers, how you treat your partners, how you treat your employees, every single detail must be in mind, not because you want to be nice, not because you're trying to get the employee of the month award like they have in Publix, supermarket, they have the plaque and the guy is smiling, he gets 8,000 hours and he's smiling in the picture, employee of the month, like it really means anything. <laughs> The guy can't afford to pay your bills because he makes $2, but they put a picture on the wall to make him feel good. No, my friend. The reality of it is, you have to be nice because Hashem said so. You have to be honest because Hashem said so. You have to be productive because Hashem said so. Because if you're not productive at work, don't work. Go to call it at least. Don't waste your life is what he's saying. Because if you are going to say, no, no, Torah is for synagogue only, says, my friend, you have a you have a much more big, much bigger problem than you imagine. Because once we think that Torah is only for a certain part of our life, then we can start feeling comfortable wasting our life. That when we have free time, we say, oh, come on, Rabbi, I don't want to learn now. I want to take a break. There's no breaks from Torah. Torah is 24 hours a day. To such an extent that to avoid the danger of what Chazal says when there's two people are there and they have a meal or they're together and they walk together and they're not sharing Torah at that time, there's a heavenly mekatreg, a prosecutor in Shemaim coming to Hashem say Hashem, Let's kill them. There's no purpose for their creation. What are they doing? They're just living in the world. The ant is also living in the world. The cow is also living in the world, but at least it's serving a purpose. It's eating the grass. So it can create more waste, so it can create more fertilizer. What's he doing? Even his waste doesn't become fertilizer anymore. It goes into a uh, bathroom. They're wasting their life, Hashem. There's a mekatred. There's actually a malach that comes to Hashem and says he's wasting his life. Let's, let's get rid of him. To avoid the danger of ever having this mekatreg chas v'shalom, each person has to have some dvar Torah every day. In his mind, that he's ready the minute that he has any somebody next to him, they're eating, they're drinking, they're smoking a cigarette, even though you're not supposed to smoke cigarettes, but people smoke. You're, whatever, you're alive, you're with somebody, you're with another Jew, always have, instead of talking about 
baseball, basketball, skiot, all the stuff, have a Dvar Torah. Hey, you know what? You hear this Chidush, you hear this, you hear that. Then you say, come on, Rabbi, I can't learn that. I work so much, I have a family, I have this, I have that. It's hard for me to think of a Chidush, to think of something new every day. So Hashem made it easy for you. There are plenty of books by great rabbis that they made like something called like a daily planner. It's like a calendar. Sometimes it's in the form of a book. Sometimes it's in the form of a calendar. You can put it on your desk and there's a quick verse or a quick Dvar Torah next to it. I know there's one that I just sent to one of my students in New York by Rabbi Tversky. But yeah, like a daily chidush. Daily thing, like a daily, you know, I don't know, it takes 40 seconds, 50 seconds to read a few things, like a thought. But it's connected to Torah. Have at least one, two, three, or four of them in your mind at all times. If you don't have a good memory, have it on your desk, have it in your drawer, have it available. Have it, start acting as if it's an emergency. If you start treating Hashem's Chidushim like an emergency, the beauty is going to start giving you new ones without you having to have the book. So now it continues. Now what if I start treating this Torah like it's something special? If two sit together and they do share words of Torah, says the divine presence rests between them. What does it mean the divine presence rests between them? Hashem says, I created the whole world, one person, Adam Rishon. Every Jew must think to himself, man or woman, that Hashem created the world for them. Sure, there's other Jews, there's other people, there's other animals, there's other fish, there's other this, there's other that. But for you, it was enough. For you to say Amen once, it's enough for, him, for Hashem to create the world. Enough of a reason. Now when he sees that two of his tzaddikim are learning Torah, he stops what he's doing, running the world, so angels, demons, all these different creations he has, hey, stop one second. Fidel and Shmuel are learning Torah right now. The Gemara Masechet Bachot, Daf 6. Let me go see what they're saying. He comes there and he starts listening and writing it, it says in the Book of Remembrance. I've always had this question. What is this Sefer Zikaron, this Book of Remembrance? What, Hashem has a bad memory? What does he need to write what we're learning? The fact that he's coming to the Shio Torah, he's with us right now, is already, I'm already excited. What is he writing? Why, if he's going to forget? What is he writing in his Book of Remembrance, his Book of Memories? He has a good memory. What is he writing it for? Hazal explained to us something scary but good to know. Hazal says, every time you waste time, every time you hang out with one of your friends and you guys are not really exactly tzaddikim, you're just doing nothing, you're talking about LeBron James, you're talking about football, you're talking about baseball, you're talking about stock market, you're talking about nonsense, doing nothing with your life, 
is a mekatreg. One of the sins you actually made in your life goes up to Shemaim. He says, Hashem, he's doing it again. He's doing it again. Not only he did it to create me, he's doing it again. Hashem, it's time. He prosecutes against you. Gemara says, Satan, Malach HaMavet, and Yetzirah, same thing. First, Yetzirah convinces you to make the sin. Then the Satan, Mastin Alecha, goes up to Shemaim and says, Hashem, look, 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 he's doing it again. He's doing it again. Look, look, look what he did. Look, he just ate pig. Look, he just mechal Shabbat. He tells Hashem, like Hashem doesn't know. So a little rat goes up and says, look, 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 look what he did. Look, look, he's eating that kosher. Look, he's looking at that girl. And once Hashem, Hashem Yerachem, signs off, who's the one that takes the soul? Allah Hamavet. He's all three. Convinces you to make the sin, tells on you, and he's the one that ends up giving you the punishment. So now, when we're doing something good, we're learning the Torah like we are today, creating angels, we're creating good things, we're creating a defendant. Hashem is here, he's writing it. Why? Because when the Mekatreg is going to come upstairs, one time we're going to have Hasbun Shalom, one day. We're going to forget this shoe and we're going to start wasting time again. The Mekatreg is going to come upstairs to Shemaim and say, Hashem, look, he's doing it again. What is Hashem going to do? No, 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 no. Hold on a second. Look, I got a whole book of Chidushim that he had. The book of remembrance. Remember that book of memories? Why did Hashem write it? He wrote it so that Mekatrek can see. Look, look, look. He has, okay, fine. He's not doing good right now. But look at what he did last week. Look at what he did yesterday. Look at what he did five hours ago. I was there. I can't. And I was a witness. I went to the shiur with him. I saw it. I wrote everything he said. Everything he heard. Everything he thought. I actually wrote it. Why did I write it? I wrote it because I needed to show evidence to the Mekatreg that my friend, he's a tzaddik. He's not such a rasha like you're making him out to be. He makes some mitzvot. He's not so bad. Okay, he's not Rabbi Akiva, he's not Moshe Rabbeinu, but he's doing something good. This is one of the important things we need to know. But now Chazal tells us, okay, wait a minute. So, that's good because there's two people learning or more. Hashem comes to the shiur. But if it was just that, if that's the only verse they're going to use, what happens in more common situation... The more common situation is that you study by yourself. You don't have a chabuta. Sometimes you go to shiur Torah. But there's not shiur Torah every day. You can't go to every shiur Torah every single day. You can't go to the Beknesset and study with someone every day. Sometimes it's just you and a book. Is that okay too? Mishnah says, For this, from this verse we would know this only to be about two people. But how do we know that even if one person sits and occupies himself with Torah, the Holy One blessed he determines reward for him. We learn that from the book of Lamentations. Jeremiah wrote, Jeremiah the prophet says, let one sit in solitude and be still. For he will have received reward for it. Yoshev badad ve'idom kinatal alav. 
What is your shift badad v'idom? It's this guy sitting in the corner at the Knesset. Everybody finished praying. He opened one of the books. And if we are, you know, they have in every Knesset, they have a million and a half books, but they're all brand new because no one wants to read. This guy actually took it upon himself and actually picked it up. He said, oh, book about Emunah, book about Usar, book Mara, whatever. He took the book, finally opened it, and started reading after the tefillah. He's like, okay, I don't need to be home right now. My wife and kids and everyone can wait a half hour, an hour. He starts learning by himself. Or he has a few books at home. Everyone went to sleep. Or perhaps he has a certain time during the day that he made a deal with his wife to study. Point is, he made time to study. He takes one of the books to study by himself. Chazal is telling us, not only is Hashem excited about this, not only is Hashem rewarding him for it, but Hashem it Barach comes down, he's his chavuta. He comes down. So, Masechet Brachot, page 12, what a good chidush I have on this one. What do you have? What do you have? He's excited to learn with you. What do you have? What kind of chidush? Because there are, every single Jew has his own chidushim waiting for him in Shemaim. Waiting for him in Shemaim. Only he can get those chidushim. So in this generation, we have a little bit of a problem. We're getting misguided to some extent of how great we really are in our studying of Torah. What do I mean? Many yeshivot have this policy where they don't want their students to learn art scroll. And the reason why is because unlike the old Gemarot, the Talmud that we've had for many, many years, where pretty much just had the Gemara and Rashi, the art scroll not only gave a translation to different languages, most commonly English, but on top of it, it gave more details and made the Rashi more readable and made some of the other commentary more readable making it much easier to understand the Gemara. <clears throat> and some of these yeshivot or rabbanim are saying, no, this eliminates the ability of the Talmud, of the person studying, it eliminates his ability to think. Like if he studies the traditional Gemara, he's going to get to the same conclusion anyway. It's going to take more time, it's going to take more effort, but he's going to get there anyway. So, by giving him an art school, by in essence, what they call, they call, by giving him like a cheat sheet, he's not using the full capacity of his brain. Now, if this person has been studying Torah since he was born, or since he was a little kid, five, six, seven years old, he's been studying for his whole life, then... I agree 100%. At that point, he should be able, at 20 years old, he should be able to read the Gemara, should read the Tosfot, read Rashi, read Aramaic, everything is good, everything is kosher, let him use his brain to the fullest extent. If he's got a brain. But if he's the vast majority of Jews today, then at the best case scenario, he's about you, better just started learning. At the best case scenario. 
In the most likely scenario, he's never even opened the Sefer Gemara. But the best case scenario, he just start keep coming to a few shurim, saw a few Torah proofs, got some Pasha Shavua, likes it, start keeping Shabbat, started learning, ta da da. Okay, fine. What do I need to learn? You give him a Sefer Gemara, you say Musa. The guy said, no, no, don't learn this Gemara. This is it's too easy. No, my friend, that's a big mistake. That is a very, very big mistake. Why? Because he did not learn any of this stuff his whole life. This is completely brand new to him. Also, even more so, this is also relevant to many students that don't necessarily have the brain capacity that the really, really smart kids have. Not every kid is built the same way. Some kids are geniuses. They are able to finish the shots at 15, 16 years old. But the overwhelming majority of them may never finish the shas. May never finish reading the Daigmala. And they don't even like most of it. Because they don't understand it. So you forcing them to use brain power they don't even have yet. You're just leading them to fail. The second point, for anyone who thinks that people should learn Gemara like they used to, 100 years ago, 200 years ago, 500 years ago, before art school, another mistake that they're making is that they assume that what art school did is they gave away everything. It didn't give away anything. It just made it more readable. Someone that really understands Gemara knows that even if you read the same page, not a different page, not a different Gemara, the same exact page, a thousand times, not a hundred times, not 200, not 304, a thousand times, you'll still find a brand new Kiddush in every page. Something new in the same page. Every time. You cannot compare someone that read one Gemara a hundred times next to someone that read Gemara a hundred one times. They're two completely different students. Their wisdom is miles apart. The distance between 100 and 101 is greater than the distance between 1 and 100. I know this is a little bit deep, but to say that they gave all the secrets just because they made it more readable, all you're doing is you're killing the steam that people have, the ambition that people have to begin with. Let them understand what it says. Now, why do I care about this subject so much? Because one of the things that I see regularly, unfortunately, is a problem in the religious world. Not a problem in the irreligious world, the secular world, which is already we know of. The common problem we know of is that most of Amisad doesn't keep anything. But the problem that's being ignored is that in the religious world, you have many people that took it upon themselves. I don't know, they were taught that way, they were told to do it, or they just decided to do it on their own. I'm not really sure exactly how this happened. But they decided to start becoming their own Rashi. Like they heard someone say, oh, there's 70 faces into the Torah. They said, okay, so I'm going to be one of the faces. Like they're going to translate and interpret the Torah the way they understand it, especially when it comes to Gemara. So for example, I have one guy that, uh, he's listening to what I'm saying, but the point is, is that he understood for many years, however long it's been, he learned this Gemara where it says that in Masechet uh, Ketubot, page 110, 
it says that any Jew, that all Jews need to live in Eretz Yisrael, and any Jew that lives in the exile is like someone, is like someone that is worshipping Avodah Zarah. So now, the basic understanding, if you don't understand Gemara, it says, wait a minute, we're all idol worshippers now. More than half of Ami says idol worshippers, even the Tzadikim, even Rambam that lived in Egypt. How could this be? So what's the explanation? The reason why it says they're not, it doesn't say they are idol worshippers, it says they're like idol worshippers. What does it mean? Oh no, I'm sorry, not like idol worshippers, but they're like someone who doesn't have a God. Anyone that doesn't live in Israel is like someone who doesn't have a God. So all of a sudden we're all atheists. So what does it actually mean? The Sfarim HaKadoshim, the holy books and the sages explained to us this. Said that Hashem put a angel, a sal, to run each nation. Each one of the nation, there's an angel responsible for them. For example, the nation of Egypt has, which is Mitzrayim in Hebrew, has an angel named Mitzrayim. He's responsible for them. So when Ami said got to the Yamsuf, the Sea of Reeds, the angel Mitzrayim came to Hashem, Hashem, how are you going to split the sea for Am Yisrael and kill my nation? They're idol worshippers. I understand the Egyptians are idol worshippers. But so are the Jews. A few weeks ago they were idol worshippers. So how could you split the sea for them and kill them? What ended up happening is that we showed Hashem our emunah in action and not just in words to get the merit for Hashem to split the ocean for us plus we're going to receive the Torah. But this is not the subject at hand. The subject at hand right now is that we learned from that story that the angel of Mitzrayim, his name is Mitzrayim. And Chazal says, every nation has an angel responsible for them. And Hashem gives the Shefa, gives the all of the goodness that He has to give whether it's a decree for reward or a decree for punishment, he gives it through them to give to their people. Not that he needs their help, chas v'shalom. Why does he have these angels? Because that is the behavior of a king. A king does not do everything himself. You ever see a king cleaning his own bathroom? You ever see a king fixing his castle? He can fix the castle. He's smart. He went to school. But he doesn't. Why? Because not what a king does. What does a king do? He rules. He tells people to do stuff. You fix this. You run this. You fight this one. You fight that one. So the anagah, the behavior of Hashem Barach, is that even though he, in essence, operates and does everything, because if he doesn't think about it, it doesn't happen, he has different angels that he gives to deliver, to be the... Um, what is it called? The Tsino, like a uh, the way, the delivery system, in essence, of all of his decrees, all of the good, all of the bad, and so on. With the exception of Eretz Yisrael. 
in the land of Israel, he himself is the one that's responsible for it. So what does the Gemara mean here? The Gemara says that anyone that lives in, outside, anyone that lives in Eretz Yisrael is getting the Shefa from Hashem Yitbarach himself. But anyone that lives outside of Eretz Yisrael is getting it from one of his angels. So he's, he's like the Gentiles who don't get their Shefa from Hashem, they get it from one of the angels. He's like someone who doesn't have a God. Not that he's an atheist. This is a wide gap between the two understandings. One is an atheist, one is... No, he just lives in the exile. So when someone doesn't understand the commentary, or doesn't understand what the actual sages are saying, because he just is deciding to, you know, to translate it himself, you have a serious problem. So that's why one of the things that we have to understand is that the first and most important thing for you, when you learn Gemara, you learn any type of Torah, is for you to understand the basic meaning. The secret, the things that are beyond the obvious, the chidushim, all that other stuff is later. The most important part is understand the basic literal meaning of what happens here. Who get me? Who's against who? Who's winning? Who's losing? What's up? What's going on here? That's the most important part. In the Gemara, and in this generation, we're so far removed from where we really need to be that without a little bit of help of just understanding how to read it, we won't even understand the basic meaning. So to say, listen, don't use the training wheels. Start riding the bike right off the bat with no training wheels. You're killing me. I'm going to fall so many times right off the bat, I'm not going to want to do it again. Who cares if I'm using my brain? Let me just understand what it says. It's not about brain development yet. It's about neshama development. So this is a very, very important part in regards to learning Gemara. Learning anything, really. So when someone is learning alone, going back to this Mishnah, Hashem says, I'm going to be with, I'm going to be Yitzchavuta. He learns, I'm going to come be Yitzchavuta. He wants to learn 2 o'clock in the morning, I'm ready. Wants to learn 1 o'clock in the morning, I'm ready. 1 o'clock in the afternoon, I'm ready. Obviously, it's good for you to learn with a Chavuta, with somebody else. Because you're going to end up doing things that you won't do naturally. Like for example, one of the things we learned from Rabbi Chaneah ben Tardion's daughter, Buria, we learned in the Gemara Masechet Brachot, is that you have to study out loud. Meaning that every time you read something, when you're studying alone or studying with somebody, you should read it out loud. Because that way you use multiple senses, which helps your memory and helps your understanding. If you just read it with your eyes, then you're only using one sense. But if you, if you, if you say it out loud, then you're using your eyes to read. You're using your mouth to speak. You're using your ears to hear. And then you're already using multiple senses that's going to help you. Now, if you study alone, you're more likely to not do any of that. You're more likely to read with your eyes. Even if once in a while you read out loud, after a while you go back to the default of just reading with your eyes. And that's why you end up not knowing everything. 
as much as you should. Whereas when you read with somebody, mm-hmm. <clears throat> the only way he's going to know what you're talking about is if you read out loud to each other. So it forces you to do what you're supposed to do anyway. So there's a major benefit of learning with a chavuta. Go ahead, question. Yeah, yeah uh, what do you say? That was in Yermiyahu, what do you say? Somebody's letting it sit alone and study or something? Yeah. What was Yermiyahu, what? It was Lamentations, the Book of Lamentations, Micha. No, but you said uh, Yermiyahu first. Yeah, Yermiyahu wrote, wrote the Book of, of Lamentations. Oh, I'm sorry, okay, okay. Jeremiah wrote the Book of Lamentations. Yeah, so Lamentation is... is uh, Lamentations, chapter 3. Verse 28. Okay. Thank you, that was it. Yeah, there's also a book of, Jer- of Jeremiah, but there's also yeah, a book yeah, of uh, Lamentations. Lamentations. Yeah, yeah. He, bo- he wrote that book. Correct. Um, so, when you're learning with a Chavuta, it forces you to do things that you don't normally do. You learn with a group, it forces everybody to share their ideas, forces everybody to do things, think outside of the box, because everybody wants to bring something new yeah. to the table. So when you learn with a group, not only is the learning better, but actually it says here, one of the things we learn from here, that the merit is greater. Why? We see that when someone is learning alone, Hashem comes and gives them reward. But when someone is learning with somebody, Hashem also writes it in the book of remembrance. It goes into that book. So that's another major benefit of learning with a Chavuta. Now, some of the things that we need to understand is that there is a major benefit to... Yeah. Good. To learn. It's a form of learning to learn. And when you ask questions, you become like a chavuta. But if somebody comes to shiur to and the whole time they're sleeping, okay, the neshama is learning, but they're not learning. <laughs> but if they ask questions they get involved it's like a chavuta like you're doing right now you're asking questions you're getting involved that's like a chavuta okay when you learn when you learn Torah from audio when you learn Torah from Shiu Torah let's say on YouTube or Torah anytime or Bezrat Hashem.org you uh, are getting merit for learning Torah 100% but it's not as high as the merit you're going to get for actually going to the lecture. And where we learn it from? We learn it from Gemara Masechet Brachot, where Chazal explains to us that the biggest merit that someone gets for going to a Shiur Torah is for the actual going, meaning for the travel, not for the actual being in a Shiur Torah. So yes. Chazal says, why? It's just the, the, the action to go and... and the to going be- to the Shiur Torah, you get a bigger reward for it. And the reason why is because if they go to a shiur Torah and the speaker is a serious speaker, he's not one of these like weak-minded people that just tells people everyone's a tzaddik. Someone's going uh, wake you up. Someone's going to tell you things that are new every time. He says most people are not going to remember most of what he says. You're going to remember maybe 5%, 10% of what he says. You're not going to remember everything. Unless you wrote down everything, you're not going to remember everything. So how can I give you a partial reward? I want to give you a full reward, Hashem says. So what do I know that for sure, for sure you did 100%? You walked there. You drove there. You got to the shiur. That took time. You get a full reward for that. So there's a bigger reward for going to the shiur than there is for listening to the shiur. But aside from that, the other reason of why um, why someone gets a, a bigger reward for going to a shiur Torah than listening to it online, even though it's, again, it's... If you have a choice, 
then go to the shiur. If you don't have a choice, if you live in Cuba, you live in, uh, you know, I don't know, Panama, you live in Australia, you live in somewhere in Africa, you live in Israel, you live in all these different amazing countries that, you know, I have students in that want to watch my shiur, but they can't come to Miami. They want to watch the shiur. So they watch it on Facebook, they watch it on my website, they watch it on YouTube, they watch it in different places. Fine, it's not a problem. But if you can come, and you don't come, you're missing out on a major reward. What's this reward? You're missing out on the opportunity of being part of the Kiruv too. Part of the Kiruv. Now learning Torah, you're going to learn the same online and in person. But the Kiruv you can only do if you attend. And the reason why is because when you come to a lecture... The speaker, if he's doing it for Shem Shamayim, if he's an honest speaker that's going to tell you and do what he's doing purely for Hashem, Hashem will put the words in his mouth to say. He can study from here until next year. Hashem can decide to tell him to do something else completely. Now, if you're part of the crowd, Hashem is going to give him words that are specifically relevant to you, even if he didn't study it. Even if he didn't know it before the shiur, he'll give him things to know during the shiur just for you. Now, I wouldn't believe this if I was one of you guys because I was a very, very skeptical person in the old days. But I'm a speaker and I can know, I know for a fact that every time I go to the shiur, it happens. I study one thing, many times I end up saying something completely different. Even though you guys see I have books and everything else, many, many times... What I planned on saying and what I end up saying are two completely different things. Like for example, I planned on saying something different now, but I ended up answering this question. But now, this is actually pure siyat vishmaya. How? I'll prove it to you. I was thinking, I have this really good story, but I'm going to fit it in. It has nothing to do with the lecture. It has nothing to do with the lecture. But you just helped me. How did you help me? I told you that the biggest schut, the biggest benefit of coming to a lecture, aside from the learning, is the Kiruv. So how do we know there's such a big benefit to Kiruv? In the Gemara that I brought here, Masechet Moed Katan, you see the page was already open. <laughs> Masechet Moed Katan. It tells a story, this, 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 this is page 25a, it tells of a story, it gives all the halachot of what happens when when somebody passes away. So it gives a few stories of what happens when some of the sages passed. So, Rav Huna passed away. Rav Huna, one of the greatest, greatest tzaddikim that ever lived. And the sages of Israel said, where should we put him to rest? Where should we bury him? What do you mean, where should we bury him? Take him to Bet take him to a cemetery. What's the question here? No, 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 my friends. They said, wherever we bury him must be appropriate for someone of his stature. Because Rav Huna disseminated Torah amongst the Jewish people. Meaning, what did he do? He taught Torah to everyone. He did Kiruv. He helped people do Tshuva. He helped people come to Hashem. He didn't just teach the scholars in the Yeshiva and got honored all day. No, no, he went everywhere that he could. He went and he taught Torah. Someone that does Kiruv, someone that's a part of Kiruv, he can't just be buried next to anyone. He has to be buried next to some, someone worthy. They said the only one that's worthy is Rabbi Chia. 
Bury him next to Rabbi Chia. Why? Because Rabbi Chia also did Kiruv. Rabbi Chia used to say, I just want to make sure that the Torah is not forgotten. What does it mean, I just want to make sure the Torah is not forgotten? He goes, teaches all the ignorance. Teaching the wise, teaching the tzaddikim, it's easy business. They're already tzaddikim. You're not trying to like a, uh, get them to be bigger tzaddikim. They're tzaddik already. Okay, so you give them a chidush. It's nice. But who doesn't want that job? Who doesn't want the honor of being the doladol? Teaching the ignorance, teaching the guy doesn't even know Aleph Bet. And you gotta teach him Aleph, Aleph, Bet, Bet, Gimet, 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 Dalet, Dalet, Hey, Hey. Moshe, Moshe. Went, went. Mountain. You teach him word by word the ignorance. Rabbi Chia. Rabbi Chia. He says, Rabbi Chia did Kiruv? Rabbi Ravuna did Kiruv. Bury them together. Bury them together. That's the only fit. So the story goes, uh, so it's okay, so who's going to have the merit to go into the cave? For It's not just an ordinary cemetery. He's buried in a cave. It's a holy cave. So one of the students says, ah, I have the merit. He has this confidence in himself. He goes, I watch my eyes. I never wasted seed. I studied Torah with them. Okay, you know what? They say, you're right. You watch your eyes. You didn't waste seed. You study Torah with them. You sound, like the, you sound like the right fit. Go. You take the body. You put him in the cave. And Agmaran says, he got to the cave and he sees Rabbi Chia is buried next to his two sons. And one of his sons gets up, the older son, gets up and says to the younger son, move, move over. It's not good to let Rav Huna wait for you to move with his Kedusha. They're not alive. But the Neshamot are still operating. But when he moved, it created such a fire that this student didn't think he's so righteous anymore. He protected himself and ran away. That's the schut of someone that brings back neshamot to Hashem Barach. Why? Because you bring him back his children. So when you come to the Shi'ut Torah, you're part of the merit, you're part of the schut, you're part of the whole thing. What's another story? Another amazing story is they had two tzaddikim, Rava, and uh, let me see, it was Rava, Different one, different one. And Rabbi Amnuna? Yeah, I think Rabbi Amnuna. Two tzaddikim that they were taking to bury. They both died at the same time. They put them both on two different camels. And the Arab who was leading them was saying, uh, you know, was taking them, seeing that the camels were walking right next to each other, one next to the other. Eventually they get to a bridge that's very narrow. And uh, tries to pull one of the camels, doesn't go. Tries to pull the other camel, doesn't go. So he turns around to the Jews, to the rabbis. He says, no, what's going on with these camels of yours that you have? They're carrying the, they're carrying the coffins. Why don't they move? So the king say, oh, 
the, 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 even when they're dead, the righteous are trying to give honor to each other. Who's going to go first? <laughs> so the Arab, the ignorant Arab says, Oh, Rabbah was much bigger. He should go first. He decides which one is a bigger tzaddik. This Arab guy doesn't know anything from his life. He said, no, no, I knew Rabbi Moe, he was more popular. He should go first. And as soon as he said it, the camel carrying Rabbi started going. But by the time they got to the other side of the bridge, the Arabs, his entire mouth full of teeth fell out. Why? Well, I can say to him, Shemaim, who are you to even speak and say that Rabbi is bigger? <laughs> wow. So when someone is doing Kiruv, he's trying to help Am Yisrael come back to Hashem Barach. it's a very, very big deal. You can be a part of it in so many different ways. It's so easy to be a part of it that not doing it, it's Mamash, you're losing out. You can do it by attending the Shiva. You can do it by disseminating CDs. You can do it by donating. You can do it by sharing the videos online. You can do it in a million and a half different ways that to not spend some time every single day to do Kiruv. Mishnayot like this are written about that. They're saying, listen, you're wasting your life. You're wasting your life. What do you have? Five minutes a day, 10 minutes a day, 20 minutes a day. You don't have any time at all. Fine, you have money. Because obviously if you don't have any time, that means you have a lot of money. Because no one has no time and no money. You either have time or you have money. You can't tell me you work non-stop but you're still broke. You should get a new job then. No way, yeah. If you work non-stop but you know, well, you're still broke, there's a serious problem with your job or with your brain. You work non-stop, no money? How? There's people that don't work and they have money. How do you not have money? You work non-stop. So you have, you have no time? Fine. You have money? Okay, so give money. But that's one of the things. How do we get to this point? We get to the point by understanding what Rabbi Hanan ben Tardion says. Rabbi Hanan ben Tardion is telling us, understand what you're dealing with here. You're dealing with Torah, the ultimate purpose of the world. Don't be one of these fools that keeps pressing the button that's paper, paper, paper. Be the one that presses the good button. The button that's disseminating diamonds. The button that's disseminating money. The button that's disseminating Kedusha. Don't just waste your life. You have an opportunity, go to the shiur. You have an opportunity, donate to Kiru. You have an opportunity, learn Torah. Don't talk about Shtuyot. You have an opportunity, be serious. Why? Because we don't know how long we're going to be here. We don't know. Nobody, everybody thinks they're going to live till a million years old, but in reality, no one knows how long they're going to be here. You've got to take advantage of the opportunity that you have. Fulfill the will of Hashem. And with Hashem, get all of Am Yisrael closer and closer because at the end of it, every single one of us is responsible for the other. One of the other Hirushim that uh, we can finish it off with is the following. In the times of right before World War II, as we said, there was a huge amount of assimilation in Germany. There was assimilation all over the world, mm-hmm. not as much as Germany. Some parts of Germany was 40%, some parts of Germany was 20%. Uh, I'm sorry, some parts of Europe were 40%, some parts of Europe were 20%. But in Germany, it was average of over 80%. In different parts of the world, it was even you know zero almost. 
But the point being is that the assimilation that happened in Germany affected Jews all over the world. Because the main punishment started there. The main problem started there. Now one of the Ashkenazi Chachamim of the time once saw a German woman kiss her dog. So kiss her dog. Today, every two seconds, you see not only women kissing the dog, they take him on an airplane, they hug them, they talk to them, they treat him like a little baby, like a human baby. Mm-hmm. They talk to them, they have conversations with them, like the guy knows what she's talking about. I saw it in the plane when I went to New York. This woman had these two little, you know, rat-looking dogs. You know, the small ones. They don't look like like dogs. They're always shaking. Chihuahuas? Chihuahuas? Chihuahuas. Chihuahuas. Yeah. They're shaking. They're always 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 shaking. Fine, people. I, I had a dog for 16 years. I like dogs. I don't have anything against dogs. But when you get to the point you start treating it like a human being, it's a little bit of a problem. So anyway, so she has these two little dogs and she's bringing them on, you know, the plane. And uh, before the plane, while waiting, and this you know, cute little kid, know, he's maybe like eight years old, seven, eight years old, comes and he wants to, know, he wants to say hi to the dogs. So she says to the dog, Oh, hi, what's your name? And he says, oh, I'm David or something. She goes, oh. And she turns on to the dogs, whatever their names are. Look, this is David. David. And she's talking to them like they could also talk. <laughs> Look, David, this is the dog. Like, is there something wrong? They're dogs. They're dogs. They're not humans. Okay, you love them like a human. And sometimes dogs are better than humans. But they're still not human. So one of the Chachamim of the Ashkenazi world, when he saw the Tarbut, the behavior of the Germans, the Germans were admired by the world by being the most polite. Being the most polite. They say they were so polite that even when they were sending the Jews to the guest chambers, they would tell them, thank you. Thank you when they went in. Obviously, it's all fake. But he saw when they were kissing the dogs before the Holocaust. He had this chidush, nevoah, I don't know what it was. All I know, he says, you're going to see that the nation that's kissing their dogs eventually is going to end up slaughtering humans in the same place. So someone asked him, what are you Kissing a dog. What does it have to do with slaughtering human beings? He said, once you start treating the animals in a preferable way to the humans, you no longer have value of other human beings. And you'll treat them like nothing. That's exactly what happened. Shem HaChem, the same thing is happening in many parts of the world, but we're also in the end of time, so... It's not really much of a surprise. But the chidush here is that we always hear in many lectures 
כל ישראל ערבים זה לזה. All of Israel are responsible for each other. We just had the Memorial Day or morning for the six million Jews that were murdered in cold blood in the Holocaust. And every year, the same, que- same questions come up. Where was God during the Holocaust? Why did it happen? All these different things. Which anyone that learns Torah even for a short period of time knows that that's a non-starter question. Obviously, where, where was God during the Holocaust? He was there. He did it. That's the answer. I know you don't like it. I know it's not convenient. I know it hurts some people. But that's the truth. To say anything else is kfirah. To say anything else is 100% against the Torah. To say, no, no, no. He wasn't, he didn't want it to happen. But like, they, and like they try to like, you know, sugarcoat it. There's no sugarcoating. Where was he? He did it. Where was he when the guy won the lotto? He did it. Where was he when the guy died? He did it. Where was he good? He did it. Where was he when it was bad? He did it. Everything and anything that happens in the world, Hashem has to sign off on it. So now, how does this Kol Yisrael, Aravim Zelazeh, come into our world? Chazal teaches us that all of us are responsible for each other. But what do we learn from that? We learn from that, that whatever you do, Like it or not, is going to affect a Jew in Africa. Like it or not, is going to affect a Jew in Israel. Like it or not, is going to affect a Jew in Australia, in England, in anywhere else in the world. It's going to affect them. Yeah, but I don't know him. Doesn't matter, it's going to affect them. When the Jews of Germany decided to divide the Torah into two and decide to worship it sometimes, not worship it sometimes, become Christians and sometimes a Jew, become a Goy and sometimes a Jew, become a this and sometimes this, they started picking and choosing what's good and what's bad. The whole Torah unfortunately disappeared. And Hashem said, I will also disappear. I'll also hide my face. When you don't listen, I'll hide my face. You won't see me. They started assimilating. They started marrying the Goyim. And everyone said, okay, but that's Germany. What do we care? It's them. It's their problem. We're not assimilating in Poland. We're not assimilating in different parts of the world. That's their problem. No, my friend, it's your problem too. It's your problem too that we're assimilating because the punishment started in Germany but it ended in the entire world. What is this message for? This message is for Jews from all over the world. Everyone says, no, listen, in Israel it's easy to be Jewish. Okay, so the, most of the country is not religious. But it's easy to become religious. There's rabbis in every corner, there's a big Knesset in every corner. You want to be religious? Five minutes you can become religious. But they consider, many of the big Rabbanim think, uh, listen, America, psh, it's a lost cause. It's a lost cause. There's reform, there's conservative, there's Torah Hashem, there's Messianic, there's all types of garbage here. It's a lost cause. Lost cause. Anyone that lives there, probably not going to make it. No, my friends. Every single Jew is responsible for another. That means if you, whether you live in America or you live in Israel or you live anywhere else in the world, you have to affect the rest of the world with your Torah.
You don't know something, learn it and then teach it. You can't learn enough to teach, support someone that does. The point is, the fact that there's assimilation of over 50, 60, 70% in many parts of America is getting to the point of being worse than Germany. Because it's a greater number of people. There's almost as many Jews in America as there is in Israel. To just say, no, whether it's religious, is religious, whether it's not religious, not religious. Oh, my friends. We all have to wake up, we have to realize, the guy that's not religious in Canada, you're responsible for him. The guy that's not religious in Israel, you're responsible for him. The guy that's not religious in Kansas, in Oklahoma, in Canada, in, in wherever, in England, in Manchester, in this way, in that way, you're responsible for all of them. You're all responsible to do Kiruv one way or another. Why? Because if there's a Shem and Achem, a decree from Shemaim that comes and only the bad prophecies come true, and the Mashiach comes in a negative way, like it says in the book of Zechariah. You look at chapter 14 of the book of Zechariah, it talks about the atomic bomb. It talks about when someone reaches out for his friend to help him out, but his skin melts away and the only thing he has left in his hand is his friend's hand. A few thousand years ago, this sounded like some far bad dream. Today, it's, true. I mean, it's unfortunately it. a button away. Mm-hmm. Korea, Iran, mm-hmm. Pakistan, India, who knows where it's coming from? America. The reality of it is that if we don't all start doing Kiruv, we're all doomed. Because it says in Masechet Shabbat, when a negative decree comes to Am Yisrael, both the Rishayim and the Tzadikim, same boat. The end, what happens after this life is different. But the punishment in this world is the same. They both get killed. That's why in Gemara Shabbat 54 it says that the rabbis got punished before the wicked people. Why? Because they didn't rebuke him. They didn't tell him the truth. They told everybody he's a tzaddik. They told everybody, you don't need to do tshuva, you're okay. Just give tzedakah, like today's generation. So, this is a reminder. Bosh Chodesh tells us that Hashem has His timing. Everything has a time. Even the Mashiach has a time. When Yonatan ben Uziel decided to put the commentary, the secrets explanation of the other books in the Torah beyond the five books of Moses there was an earthquake that shook the entire world and a batko from Shemayim came out and said who disclosed my secrets to the sons of men Yonatan ben Uziel said I did but you know I didn't do it for my honor or for my father's honor I did it for your honor and I want to do it with the rest of the Torah I want to give commentary the secrets of the rest of the Torah and the batko from Shemayim the heavenly voice said no You've done enough. Chazal says, why you've done enough? We need to know what's going to happen. He says, no, no, no. The secret of when the Mashiach is going to come exactly is in the part. And we can't know when the Mashiach is going to come. Why? Because if you're going to know he's going to come next week, you're going to do tshuva this week. If you know he's going to come in in three years from now, you're going to do tshuva in two years from now. That's right. Convenient. You're going to make a deal. That's why Yaakov Avinu was going to tell his sons 
Let me tell you what's going to happen at the end of days, it says in the verse. Let me tell you what's going to happen at the end of times. And then Chazal says he forgot everything. Hashem took away everything from me. He didn't tell me. Why? Because Hashem didn't want us to know exactly when it's going to happen. But you don't have to be a genius sage to know that we're at the end of days. That's right. First of all, we're out of time. If you look at the calendar. Second of all, the whole world is boiling. Everyone wants to fight. Third of all, it's just obvious. What's the obvious part? If Mashiach doesn't come soon, we're not going to have Judaism. There's so much assimilation in the world today. One, two generations, Shemachem. It's not going to be any Judaism. All these people that are assimilating, 60, 70, 80% of American Jews that are assimilating, the next generation, no longer Jewish. You have 6 million, turn it to 2. So the responsibility of doing Kiruv is not only because you get a big reward, like Rav Huna, Rav Chia, big honor in Shemaim, of who is even going to be buried next to you. But it's a responsibility because of Avat Hashem. It's a responsibility of Avat Israel. You have to do it, because if you don't do it, we're all doomed. Be'ezat Hashem, this reminder, this Rosh Chodesh, is a reminder of Hashem's timing. But it's also a reminder for us to start putting an alarm clock and reminding ourselves that we need some timing. We need to spend some serious time. It's also a celebration, to celebrate a new home of a new Jew, an extraordinary person that's zealous, that loves Hashem, that's willing to do anything and everything for Hashem, that's here to remind us that the things that we take for granted because we were born in a certain way, because our mothers were a certain thing, because of all this stuff, we can't. Can't take it for granted anymore. Why? Because the way it looks like, if the Jews don't start, the natural born Jews don't start becoming more Jewish, the only ones that are going to be saved are going to be the converts. So, Be'ezat Hashem, this is a wake-up call to help us bring more and more Kedusha to this home, to this community, to this country, to this world, and to the entire nation. Any questions? To the Miami Kehila. Miami Kehila. <laughs> Any questions? That's what we call ourselves when we study. Do you have questions or you already know the entire talk after this Kedusha? <laughs> I know, as soon as I turn off the camera, all the, all the questions start, so I'm going to leave it running for a little bit. So, by you sharing the, the shoes, it's a good idea to let other, other people from as many people different countries to, you know, that knows you to understand and talk. 100%. As many people as possible. you got to share it everywhere and any way you can. If you're already on Facebook, share it on your pages. Share it in the groups that you're in. Because you never know. You never know. Somebody's going to watch it and then do tshuva. I mean, it's amazing to me the people that watch this shiur, every time usually I see the people comment you know, or that sometimes they send me uh, emails or text messages and so on. They tell me, you know, people from 
different parts of the world that I could never imagine reaching. Russia, parts of Israel, parts of South America, parts of Canada, just different parts from all over the world. I have people in, uh, what is it, Tahiti. I didn't even know there was any Jews in Tahiti. <laughs> you know, there's a, apparently there's a big Kila of Jews in Australia. There's a, I mean, there's Jews everywhere. And there's also many non-Jews that are looking to become Jews. I actually have one tzaddikah who's Korean. She's Korean. She's not Jewish, but she's dying to convert. But unfortunately, there's no, no, no Judaism whatsoever where she lives. But in the meantime, what is she doing? She's doing Kiruv. How is she doing Kiruv? She started putting subtitles in Korean on our videos. <laughs> so if there's obviously other like-minded Koreans, right. at least they have an ability to learn some Torah now. That's right. Again, we're in the end of days. Hashem is making us much bigger than we deserve to be. He's also giving us an ability to reach many more people because there's not that much time. People that want to convert, this is the time. People that want to become religious, this is the time. Anyone that's going to waste time, you're going to miss the bus. You're going to miss the train, and then you're going to regret it forever. Once Mashiach comes, everything stops, right? Everything stops. No more conversions, no more tshuva, no more nothing, unless you're already in the process. Meaning, if you're in the process of converting, and you're a serious convert, since Hashem knows what's in your heart, then you should be fine. But if you are just one of those people that's like, you know, still, you know, living... Wishy-washy. And, uh, you know, wishy-washy, exactly. If you are, <laughs> if you were, you know, one of these people that's like, you know, wants to be a Jew once a week. You know, there's many people that they want to keep Shabbat, but they don't want to keep the rest of the mitzvot. And they argue with me why I keep mentioning the Rambam that says that a Goy is not allowed to keep Shabbat. What do you care if I keep Shabbat? I don't care if you keep Shabbat. Rambam says you don't have to keep Shabbat. Argue with him. Argue with Rambam. Rambam is oral Torah. Argue with Hashem. He said it. He said, the Brit is Beni Benechem. The covenant is between me and my nation. Not me and everyone. Shabbat is only for Am Yisrael. It's not for all of, all, all of mankind. So when anyone, I don't care if they call themselves a rabbi or not, they tell you anything otherwise, they're wrong. A non-Jew is not allowed to keep Shabbat. But people want to make their own rules. Say, no, 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 but I'm going to keep Shabbat. Okay, so why don't you just convert? No, but I can't do this, and I can't do that, and I can't do this. Okay, then don't keep Shabbat, and keep the seven laws of Noah. If you want to, I don't know, hang out, relax on Saturday, do it. But don't call it, you're doing it Shabbat. You're allowed to relax, you're allowed to party, you're allowed to do whatever you want. But don't say, I'm keeping Shabbat, start lighting candles, start doing Kiddush. That's, that's, not, that's creating a new religion. You're not creating a religion. So, if you're going to convert, convert. If you're going to do tshuva, do tshuva. Stop wasting time. You know, if you can't do it, if you can't, stop praying for Hashem to help you. You know, some people that want to convert, they're dying to convert, but they don't have the money, or they don't have the ability to, you know, to move, because you have to live in a Jewish community. And it's a lot, it's like a tikkun for them. It's a really, really big problem. Or they have a spouse that's not ready to convert. They really want to convert, but their spouse can't. Or their spouse doesn't want to. So, stop praying. How long? I don't know. Oh my God. Pray. Pray more. Did it happen yet? No. So pray some more. 
Pray more, 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 more. I have one student, she's married to a Jew. She's married to a Jew, and she says, I want to convert. But the Bet Din won't convert me. Why? Because her husband is an atheist. He's a Jew, but he's an atheist, a kofel. It's a problem. They won't convert him, because they say that if he's an atheist, he's not going to let you keep Talat Mishpacha. So he can't convert you. It's a problem. Point being is that, so I said, so she says, what, what should I do? So the biggest thing you could do, aside from learning what you need to learn for conversion, is to do Kiruv. Why? You start showing Hashem, you care enough about His children, He'll start caring about your children, including your family, your husband, whoever it is. He'll make the world work. Whatever has to happen is going to happen. Sometimes it's going to be where the guy wakes up, or the child wakes up, and he becomes a tzaddik all of a sudden. Sometimes it's going to be, you decide, you know what, it's not for me. Sometimes something's going to happen in the world that was completely unwarranted or un, you know, just unknown, but Hashem made it happen. Why? For you. Sometimes I'll just show you, listen, this is a relationship you don't need to be in. And you knew it the whole time, this is just a reason to finally do it. You should have gotten divorced 10 years ago, but you didn't do it because of a million and a half reasons. Now Hashem is telling you, okay, I'm going to make that happen. Why? Because you need to be a Jew, and He doesn't. So, the point is, the people that are ready to make a move, make it. Make it. Don't waste any time. Don't worry about money. Don't worry about anything. Why? Because Hashem, all the money says, He says, mine is the money, mine is the gold. If you're not converting because of money, you're going to have a serious problem in Allah. Serious problem in Allah. Say, oh, you could have been a Jew, and what? You didn't do it because of what? Oh, the rent was too high? Oh, the this was too much? That was too much? So you, you lost Allah because of 150 bucks a month? That's what, you, that's what happened? You, it's worse than Gehinnom. Because you have, on one end, you have the endless prize. And to get it, you need a quarter. And he didn't do it. No, no, it was the rent to move to the Jewish community was too high. How much was too high? What, was it $50,000 more a month? $100,000 more a month? No, no, it was 300 bucks. Hashem doesn't have 300 dollars to give you. He ran out of money. He spent it all on Noah's Ark. Don't tell me you wanted to convert, but you didn't convert because of 300 bucks. Don't tell me that, because if you come up to Shemaim and you tell them that, you're going to have a, a bigger problem. Don't go up to Shemaim and tell them, I, I didn't convert because it's $300. <laughs> you have a serious problem if, if you didn't convert for $300. Also, don't tell me, oh, I didn't convert because of some other small, miserable excuse. You want to convert? Convert. You don't want to convert? Give seven laws or not. No problem. You have a law also. Same thing with Baal Tshuva. Don't tell me, no, I didn't keep Shabbat because I need to work on Shabbat. Why? Hashem can't give you enough money on six days a week? You have to work, you have to work on seven days? All these excuses are not going to work. All these excuses are not going to work. They're not going to work. It's not going to work. You get off to Shemaim, tell them, no, 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 Hashem, listen. Tefillin, every day. Kosher, inside the house, and outside the house. Tarat Mishpacha, like a champ. 
Okay, but you worked on Shabbat. Yeah, yeah, no, but uh, come on, Hashem, Shabbat, I only work once a month. I worked on Shabbat. <laughs> once a month. Only once a month I worked on Shabbat. People like negotiate. No, no, I only work on Shabbat once a month. Just once. Just once. Just once. Okay, so I'm only going to send you the game. No, just one time. <laughs> why, why only one time? Oh, because you don't come out. <coughs> you only don't come out. You just go in one time. Once a month, one time. You can't come up with these excuses. If Hashem is Hashem, He's Hashem all the time. He's not one of our friends. He's not one of our buddies. You can't joke around with them. You yes. can't negotiate with them. Let's stop fooling ourselves. That Yetzirah, it continues to fool us every day. You gotta send them on retirement. You gotta send them to retirement. You gotta get serious. Korea is about to launch a bomb. America about to launch a bomb. Syria, if they had the bomb, they'd launch it. Iran, they don't even need to have a declaration of war. They just pressed the button 50 million times. Everybody wants to fight. You have an opportunity of a lifetime. You're a generation that's going to live to see the Mashiach. You're either going to be one of those that's going to be excited, or one of those that's going to run away. The difference, very, very thin line. Very thin line. Do Kiruv, do Tshuva, take things seriously, but everything's going to be fine. But at the very least, what you shouldn't do, you shouldn't do, you shouldn't fulfill the verse in Parashat Bechukotai, which says, And you treated me with casualness. At the very least, what you shouldn't do, is don't treat Hashem like He's one of your friends. Don't treat Him with casualness, where you're religious in the synagogue, but you're Hashem at work. You're religious in the synagogue, but as long as there's no wedding. You know, as many people that are very, very religious, but as soon as there's a wedding, make dancing, take off the kisui rosh, all of a sudden there's mini skirts, the whole year, the whole life, most religious people in the world. One of the kids get married, one of the friends get married, they have to show up with a 15 foot long uh, wig. The mini skirt can barely cover any parts of the body. The clothes are so tight you think it's another layer of skin. Well, they ask the neighbor to come and help and to put them on. So you have a serious problem when you're that kind of a religious. That's a robot that keeps Shabbat. So key, take it seriously. Don't treat Hashem with casualness. Do tshuva, do some kiruv, go to some lectures, support it, do whatever you need to do. Hashem, you'll be fine. Anything? Hey, we covered the whole Torah. <laughs> Bauchadamay Lola, Amen, Amen.